let your interest lead you here. Your interest in the way of a playful curiosity. that will introduce you to elements of yourself, elements of your experience that maybe you haven't known fully and there are really no parameters for this in that We're not suggesting focus on one thing over another or one sensation over another or one feeling over another. If we learn to cooperate with our interest well, then whatever arises within the field of our experience becomes good material for looking for seeing. And in this curiosity, there's naturally an interest for discovering what's really true about our experience. and even what true means. So the first thing I would suggest is that we just relax. Because this is not an endeavor where we use our ambition or guile. Instead, we're just approaching these moments with a kind of divine honesty or soberness. Soberly meeting this moment. And it's inevitable as we sit here a little while that tones of the past will begin to reverberate old familiar thought styles, old familiar feelings in the body, old ways of looking or interpreting or reacting. So with interest, we're prepared to meet those things soberly. And soberly just means freshly, cleanly. So maybe we find a little bit of doubt. And it's approached curiously. It's approached with interest. Maybe this is not a part of myself to just beat down or provide a narrative for. Maybe this is something to investigate. 
our interest approaches depth, we can begin to see the old manifestations of self within a new light, within a new vision. recognizing that this is not a set path. There's choice involved. Choice about what you choose to attend to. What you choose to see. choice to be free. To experience yourself for a little while psychologically free. Free for a moment from all inner representations of the outer world. kind of solitude.
should not fall into the trap of seeking a higher self. A higher self which is bigger, better, grander than a lower self. We should seek to experience our self as we are now and not as we were. And every familiar mode of mind is somehow representing who you were. Let your interest fall on who you are. What you are. As your interest grows, so will your loyalty. You will begin to feel yourself, experience yourself loyal to what is now, what is true, what is real. And this will produce untold effects in your consciousness, so just be ready. So this meditation is an act in loyalty. It's an act of devotion. With a, an open choice, what will you be loyal to? What will you be devoted to? not what you should be loyal to, not what someone else told you to be loyal to, what is your deepest loyalty in this moment? 
If you discover in a moment that you are being loyal to something you don't wish to be loyal to, then you quit instantly. not being loyal to what you no longer want, what you no longer want begins to die. Be loyal is to invest your attention, to give your emotional energy to that, that which you're devoted to, to give your body to that. can set aside seeking solutions. We can set aside seeking. Just to bathe in the crisp cleanness of your own radiant awareness.
having within it that most precious statement, I am, I am here. course we each need solutions but those solutions will be given 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 when we're clothed in our own radiant awareness fear is needed in this venture. No precautions. No hypervigilance. Just bring forth what is already in you.
and at the center of experience, just a still point, a still unmoving point.
So when we are not cooperating with our past, something new is being forged. You and I have no knowing about that direction. But if we stay interested, intrigued, something is being shaped, something is being molded. And at the same time as this new birth is taking place continuously in us, the history, the legacy, which may be our own, and it may be someone else's, it may be our family history, or cultural history, or human history, is being rewritten. Not for a better story, but for a more true expression, more real. Let's finish this quiet period by performing a task to unite whatever we've been discovering, be it quietness or radiance or even just the freshness of the now moment, to feel it transcribed, to feel it written in your body and in your nervous system, which may appear to you simply as a sense of possibility, a sense of potential, but something that when it makes contact with the body provides a quickening. sense allowing your nervous system to begin to know something different than what it has known for these past years or decades or lifetimes. find ourselves after a little while, maybe a few 
couple minutes perhaps. Just acclimatizing to the body in a somewhat new way. I'm not going to give you a formula or a strategy for that, but rather one of just our own constant discovery of how to move with the body, how to move in relation to the body, how to use your mind well. We may not even know the forces that we are quote-unquote contending with in being awake. Sometimes if we look, these forces seem to be emotional. Sometimes they seem to be biological, energetic, cultural, historical. Maybe all of those things wrapped up into one confusing bundle. But sure enough, we find ourselves attending to something we don't want to be attending to, simply put. And we find ourselves compelled to repeat an experience of ourselves that allows us to feel familiar to ourselves. That may be a joyous kind of experience. It can also be a suffering kind of experience. But in a sense, we can invite in these moments of wakefulness, a break from all historical constructs. And if we have sufficient interest and intrigue to cooperate with the huge unknown that's right in front of us, and to ride it, to ride that. We have a possibility to be shown something very important about our life.
that very important thing is not going to be anything like a teaching on how to meet our old, outdated goals. It's not like we're going to suddenly discover how to become a billionaire or how to find the perfect lover or how to be the best in anything. But we are writing a an experience into existence that speaks much more truly of who and what we really are. And as that writing happens, what we have been busy being, which is what we're not, begins to fade. We, we molt, we shed that skin because it's no longer sufficient to encompass or display what we are. And that can be glorious, wondrous, it could be horrifying. But something of our willingness to just let it happen, to let my code be scrambled and rewritten, There's something of a deeper interest then that allows us to connect to this authority in us which says, I must be true. I must know what it is to be real. Come what may. Come what may. And if we don't have that sufficient interest, then we'll probably peter around in a kind of, confu <clears throat> kind of confused orientation until we develop that interest. So we'll walk to many cul-de-sacs or find many dead ends but each cul-de-sac and dead end is, in essence, pointing us to this necessary interest and intrigue to be what you are. And it will put all kinds of pressure on us physically, emotionally, and most importantly, relationally. Because our whole network, our whole framework for how to relate to the world is an established model that we have inside of ourselves. So you change the model and you change every relationship in it. So if you relate to your mom as son or daughter, or if you relate to your lover as submissive or dominant, or you relate to your work as where you're trapped, or uh, what gives you a sense of self-esteem, these are no longer going to work. These definitions are no longer going to work because the model has changed. Oh, 
And because our models are all somewhat unique, each person is going to experience their reframing in a totally unique way. For one person, you'll have to come to the realization of how absolutely beautiful you are. That will be the realization necessary. And the other, another person will have to come to the realization that your feigned beauty is just vanity. But as we begin to respond to this call inside of us to be true and be real, we're inviting whatever necessary teachings are needed to wake up. Some of them will be very, 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 very exquisitely pleasant, joyful, ecstatic even. And some will be tremendously painful and disappointing. So the person who has sufficient interest in intrigue is also a person ready to encounter his or her delusions and let go of his or her prized possessions. That's not an easy thing for a human being to do. Because human beings like to possess things. Possessing things gives us a sense of who we are, gives us a sense of identity. I am what I own, or I am what I have done, or I am what I have accomplished. So as these definitions loosen themselves one by one, the anchoring that our sense of self and identity has had begins to float and drift. which we usually respond to with a little bit of fear. But if we can see, if our interest and intrigue are strong enough to help us see that this is an absolutely natural movement to free ourselves of these false anchors, then literally the history of what we have known ourselves to be, and that goes back a long way because we're not just talking about our own personality. We're talking about our DNA maybe, you know, the collective human experience, our culture. I mean, even just that, just our culture, just what our culture has instilled in us. So we, can, so we can understand how much heart this interest takes, like how serious our decision really is to be true and to be real. And serious doesn't mean that it's heavy all the time or dour. It just means that without our sufficient interest and intrigue, when push comes to shove, we're going to collapse. We're going to quit. We're going to feel... Like I don't want to do this anymore. It's not pleasant. It's, 
I'll just say one last thing before I open it up for some statements, questions. It's nearly impossible, maybe it is indeed impossible, to know what waking up really means. Because it's very easy for us, even if, especially if we've read a few books, to conceptualize that in all sorts of ways, to conceptualize it as an event, to conceptualize it as what it's going to turn you into, or how you might change. Just the other day I was reflecting that my first awakening experience was about 16 years ago. And if I look back on it, I can't say that the exterior details of my life or even my personality have changed very much, honestly. <laughs> Which is quite opposite to what we would expect. We expect if we're going to wake up, we're going to change. I'm not going to feel unhappy anymore. I'm not going to feel purposeless. I'm not going to feel... And if we're waking up, it's true, there will be a change. But we often underestimate the level at which that change will occur. In other words, we often feel as though we're going to wake up within our personality. Like, like we could rearrange the personality somehow and end up with a different one. Like I'll go from being an unhappy person to being a happy person. Or I'll be, you know, a purpose, a sense of a person without a purpose to a person with purpose. Which is where we might begin to ask ourselves, well, if, if that's not what we're involved with, then what the hell are we involved with? Our interest and intrigue are going to bring us to a much more sophisticated understanding of ourselves and reality that on a certain level we could say has almost nothing to do with our personality at all. Which is why a lot of people tend to get themselves all pent up in spiritual work because no matter how hard you go, you try to change your personality, it doesn't change all that much. We're trying to incorporate something that is beyond or deeper than our personality into our personality, and it doesn't really work. So most people have a very disappointing experience of spirituality, where they were given some idea that it was going to make them happy if they did meditation, yoga, prayer. It was going to make them happy, joyous, peaceful, alive. Now there's truth to all that, but just as much we could say, it doesn't bring us any of those things. But what does it do? It exhausts this personality in its quest to become something it can never become. There's a good story in the Indian tradition about, I won't tell the whole thing, but the short of it is, is that a lion gets lost, confuses itself as a donkey, goes on acting as a donkey, 
and one day a group of lions show up and they say, what the hell are you doing? You're a lion. They take him down to the water. He looks in the water. He sees, oh, I am a lion. And boom, there it is. There it is. There's the moment, right? There's the moment of, oh, I'm not figuring out how to be a better donkey here. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's kind of the issue that I'm talking about is we have our sights too low when we're focused on being a better donkey. That's not our work. Not in this room anyway. Not in this milieu. Our work is much more sophisticated than that in that it's, it's meant to bring us to lionhood. And when that's realized, you can do as you like. If you want to perform the tasks of a donkey, you can do that. If you want to perform the tasks of a lion, you can do that. You can do as you like. But at least there will be that inner knowledge of what I really am. Not just stuck in donkey land thinking, you know, I'll get a better saddle and, you know, get my hee-haw a little more crisp and clear. <laughs> Make sense? That makes sense? Like what we're up to when we're waking up. We're not just adjusting our personality. We're not just tweaking things to make it work better. When I met my first teacher, I'm just going to keep blathering until someone interrupts me. When I met my first teacher, I had, all of, I, had, I had only had an awakening experience a few months prior. And I had already acquired all of this weird overlay about what it meant to be spiritual. I had already begun to dress it and talk it and, you know, the act of spirituality. Hopefully you haven't known that place because it's an awfully hypocritical and disgusting place to end up. <laughs> but it happens to people sometimes. And when I met my first teacher, he destroyed every notion I had about what it meant to be spiritual. Because he wasn't even particularly nice. You know, he wasn't like a, a really nice guy. In fact, most of the people that I introduced to him ended up saying to me later, what are you doing with that guy? You know, because he wasn't, he didn't, he wasn't the kind of person that, you know, you wanted to just sit around and chat with and be buddies with. I mean, he, he had an intensity about him. And, you know, he would do little things. Like I'd go over to his house. One, one time I went over, I didn't own a TV because I was too spiritual to own a TV at that point. Went over to his house and I'm expecting we're going to do some ceremonies, some rituals. He turns on Golden Girls. We're watching Golden Girls. I'm here with this teacher who I absolutely adore, waiting for some like profound teaching, and we are watching Golden Girls on, on TV in the middle of the afternoon. Right? Or um, the time he said, I'm going to take you all out to dinner, and we go to Hometown Buffet. You know? That was his way. It was like sort of like, you think, you think you're going to be spiritual, huh? <laughs> you know? And I learned, not fully, but at least in part, the difference between the adjustments to try to make the personality spiritual and what it really meant to be awake. Because they're very different things. You know? Let me stop there. It is pretty easy to get, the, get my attention focused on the tweaks and feeling to think that, oh, I was looking in the pond and seeing it differently, that the tweaks would all kind of take care of themselves. 
Yeah. Like six months ago, my life had become pretty leisurely, so I was having anxiety about, geez, do I, can I work hard anymore? I don't know if I can work hard anymore. You know, it might be beyond me. Six months later, oh, I've remembered how to work hard, and now my anxiety is around. I need to say no to any new thing on my radar. You know, nothing new can come onto my plate. And uh, so it's like the same anxiety, almost opposite facets or tweaks or something. Interesting like that. how that happens, Six isn't it? Apart, you know? Yep. It's and interesting how that happens. Is there a level that I should be operating on that all that just takes care of itself? Well, I think, you know, we almost, I almost would think of it as an accident that we, we make the tweaks because we don't know what else to do. I mean, it's not, we're not just stupid running around tweaking our life. We're not idiots. <clears throat> but we don't know what else to do. So we tweak and we feel like the things that we're tweaking are what need to be tweaked. And maybe they are. But we're discovering through each tweaking, it's like, okay, you adjust the bolt this way, but wait, on the other side, now it's dug into the wood. Right? And so there's always a new tweak that arises from the tweak we just made. And we start to do, we do that continuously. And I think maybe we need to do that in some regard to develop ourselves to the fullest capacity that we can. But we start to realize, I think at a certain point, I'm tweaking continuously towards some kind of ideal. And we start to get onto this fact that we're working towards some kind of ideal that may or may not ever come to be. Right? And so the anxiety travels with us, or the anger travels with us, or our depression travels with us through all of these changes and, and alterations. And we get to a point, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years into it, where we're saying, no, I've tweaked so much. You know, I've tweaked my diet, I've tweaked my work, I've tweaked my relationships, I've tweaked, what else do we tweak? My body. I've tweaked all the things I can think to tweak, and now I don't know what else to do because I'm still not at what I've been aiming for. I'm still not happy. I'm still not at peace. I'm still not feeling the joy of what I got into this for. And that's our sobering moment. That's when we begin to sober up. We begin to realize this isn't about tweaking things. This isn't about adjusting my attitudes or my, my perceptions. Or I mean, yes, all those things go on. They have to go on. But we start to real, realize what we're up to in a gr much greater context. And this ideal that we've formed, which is really not much different than an idol, it's an idol that we've created, that we're aspiring toward without knowingly or unknowingly. Some people know they're aspiring toward a certain ideal. Some people don't know, but we are. And that, that idol which has been sitting you know, up above on this pedestal begins to crumble. And as it crumbles, we start to discover that what's really real is here. Not body, but here. It's me, it's I, it's the I am. And as that is taking root more deeply in us, all of the idols that we are creating begin to fall away. As that discovery is happening at a more profound level, I am, I am here. I am the truth of my experience. Many changes will occur, but they will not be changes, the same kinds of changes where we were tweaking and adjusting to get a better result. You know what I mean? In other words, our life will be, start to be fed by a certain knowledge and understanding of how I must live. And that will impact my work, my relationships, 
my health, every dimension of my life as I begin to see that more and more fully. Nothing wrong, I don't want to demonize tweaking. Tweaking is an okay activity. It just has limitations to it. Is there any truth to this though, like that whether you're tweaking one way or you're tweaking the other way, if you're within what you're doing, then like you're just in it, but it's like that moment where you're you think that you need to tweak the other way. Can you say that differently for me? Like like, can we mislead ourselves about what needs to be tweaked? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, like the moment where we have that realization that, oh, I've tweaked and then now I need to be tweaking this way. But in the time, whether we're going one direction or the other direction, when we're in either direction, but we don't, we're just in it, um, it's kind of the same. Do you mean in the sense that we are operating from the same reference point? Kind of, just the one that's like present in either direction. Like the one that's doing nothing and hasn't thought about it. Or the one that's working with their head down, but just in that. But then those moments of saying, oh, I've been working with my head down too long. I should really be doing uh-huh. that again. It's really the tweaking anxiety we'd like to let go of. <laughs> are, you, are you referring to like polar opposites in our personality? Like how we bounce from like this way of being to this way of being? I don't know if I'm... Fo- I'm not doing okay here. You know, that yeah, moment, right? that moment. When it doesn't really matter what we were actually doing regardless. That's kind of what I'm like wondering about. I don't know. Do you know I get you. Yep. Um, Someone clue me in, cause I don't. I'm not. I'm not hearing the, the, th- the thread of it. That it can be in flow in leisure or in flow in work. That's the moment where you think, oh, I need to change direction. That's kind of. Okay. Yeah. That's, so we're questioning the sense of needing to change direction. Maybe. And anxiety around that. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Because that's what came up. I think that part of the part of the trouble that we experience is that when we get a call to move direction, there may actually be some real necessity for the change of direction. But what often happens for individuals is they change direction within a familiar framework. So it's like, I'm going to change, like just let's use a stupid example, like, okay, uh, eating broccoli isn't working out so well for me, I better start eating tomatoes, right? Now, uh, let's say that what's really needed is you need a good, um, a good mango, right? Within your familiar framework, you've got broccoli and tomatoes, but mangoes aren't even a part of your consideration, so that familiar framework, even though it makes a change or a turn, it keeps the familiar, familiar framework intact, which is, I, I don't know if I'm picking up on what you're asking fully, but, and then what happens is, is we're sort of like, okay, broccoli a little while, tomatoes a little while, broccoli a little while, tomatoes a little while, 
but we're kind of getting sick of, eventually we're getting sick of both. It's like, oh God, I don't want to go back to broccoli and oh God, I don't want to go back to tomatoes. And so we're beginning to find a place that's really uncomfortable, really highly uncomfortable um, because it, it's playing out both extremes of our personality in a very unsatisfying way. And there seems to be no alternative. What most people encounter at that point is the feeling that they're living inside of a dry, barren, arid desert. Sort of like, I can't go to broccoli and I can't go to tomatoes because neither of them are satisfying. What the hell do I do? And that can be a really um, excruciating place to exist. And I think, honestly, uh, you spoke of anxiety. It's where our anxiety lives. So when we're stuck in this arid desert in between broccoli and tomatoes, <laughs> what a ridiculous thing now this has become, we're beginning to also experience a tremendous amount of anxiety, right? And some impulse re in us really wants to decide on broccoli or tomato, but we can't. There's something in us that can't decide in either direction. It's like, do I choose this side or do I choose this side? And it starts to feel as though we're being walled in. You know, the, you know this experience I'm talking about? Right? You, it's like you can't look back and you can't look forward. You don't know where to look. And that's a really opportune moment occurring in us. Because what we have to familiarize ourselves is not with the broccoli or the tomato, but with where we're at. Where we're at. Because where we're at might be a dry, barren desert. And there might be a lot of anxiety. And that's what is so important is to see that, to feel that, to know that intimately, that experience. Now I've kind of gone off with this in a certain direction. Is it addressing what you're saying? Yeah, but then how do we find the mango? Does somebody bring the mango up to us and we listen to them? Or do by we realizing there's the mango a mango by realizing there's a mango tree in the desert. You see, what happens is is, okay, if we have broccoli, we have tomatoes, let's say that we know somewhere inside of us that there are other possibilities. So we know there's a mango possible out there. But what we do is we take the same approach that we did with the broccoli and the tomato, now we add a mango. And we'll do the same thing with the mango that we did. And our center point to all of these movements ends up being the same in all of these different pursuits, right? We come back to the same place, if you will. Come back to the same experience. The mango tree sprouts inside of the place that we tend to move f away from. You know? Or Rumi says it, uh, the, 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 the cure for the wound is in the wound. Right? Okay, so I just want to ask one last question, maybe. So it's not finding and devouring the mango, but it's like spirituality, but it's the knowledge that the mango can exist without devouring it, like you were saying earlier with spirituality, or I don't know, I could be off on it. Um. I would say that the mango is, if you will, the answer that springs up inside of us when we encounter the unknown. And that's a difficult thing to talk about because how could I ever familiarize you or anybody with the unknown? 
In other words, there's an unknown region inside of you. How do you know? You don't, because it's unknown. <laughs> it's an unknown region inside of you, which makes it nearly impossible to encounter, because all we tend to encounter is what we know. Right? So there's, there's a, if you will, a welcoming ourselves into that unknown. And the way we usually do that is by going right into the center of our discomfort, right? That's why we get phrases like um, outside your comfort zone and all those sorts of phrases, right? So the mango, let's say that the mango is simply that which exists outside the known. Now, what we usually do is we try to make it our project to figure out what we don't know. But that project is a known project. You see what I'm saying? You're, it, we're looking for territory as though it's going to be like the territory we've seen before. It's like you want to Google it. Yes, no. you want to Google it. You want to Google it. You want, or you want to consult somebody or read a book or something that will tell you where that's at so that you can figure it out. But you're encountering an impasse because you can't figure it out, at least not with your broccoli and tomato mind. There is a mango, there is a fruit, there is an unknown element. But unfortunately, there's nothing we can do to coax it. It's like we can't, we can't use the tools we've known to discover that unknown place. And that's a very uncomfortable place for us. Because it, makes us, it tends to make us feel powerless. It tends to make us feel like there's nothing I can do to discover this mysterious unknown that I'm being told exists, you know, or that I've had glimpses of and know myself. You know what I mean? So what becomes really crucial then is to face this powerless experience that there's nothing I can do to discover that. And that's where our old style of relating begins to dissolve. In other words, all the mechanisms and tools that we've acquired to gather broccoli, tomatoes, or mangoes aren't working anymore. And that's an important moment for us. A very important moment. It's often the moment people freak out. They don't want that moment because it's, it's uncomfortable, but it's a, a most important moment for us. It comes with the feeling, none of my devices work. You know? I mean, I can, I, I've literally read thousands of spiritual books. And I can tell you, at, at a certain point, I came to this understanding that I think I've encountered everything there is to encounter in spirituality. I don't know. I mean, I've very rarely come across anything I haven't encountered before. And, but my style, being one, thinking I could just read a bunch of books and get all the answers, no, that device doesn't work, right? It doesn't work. That's not sufficient. It's not a sufficient tool to bring me to what I want, you know? So if I find myself in a powerless place and I think, well, I'll go read another book, I'm misleading myself. You know what I mean? It's not so much our pure longing for this answer. That's beautiful. But the technique that we're using to 
to acquire it, that's what has to be seen. Because that technique is what, excuse me, keeps us within the framework of our known experience. I feel like I'm not saying this very well. It's very complicated to talk about, honestly. Any, can I clarify it at all? Is there any, are you getting this? Are you getting what I'm saying? Yeah. Are you really saying, though, that you can only really have a known experience in the present? Yes. And that I know for me, when I experience discomfort in the present, I'll look to the past or the future for the answer. Yeah. It's like, it's like there is no history of the present. Right. But I'll still Google, like, how to avoid present discomfort. Right. You know, and then I'll read a history of someone's discomfort, which takes me out of the present. And I've managed to avoid the present temporarily. But then eventually that, that that's gone. Yes. To the present. And, uh, yeah. So it, what, what comes up for me is, and I want to hear from your experiences, um, there's a lot of discomfort in the present. Yes. Initially. Initially. Well, I haven't gotten past the initial discomfort. <laughs> Most people don't. I trust you on that one. Most people don't. Yeah. Honestly. So what, what and it, I just, I want to like to either declare war on discomfort or comfort. Right? right. I know this as a black and white thinker. Sure. Um, and I feel like I'm not the only one, but we're so programmed to seek comfort and novelty. Yeah. As a way to avoid discomfort. Um, well, I think novelty is actually a pure drive in some sense. They both are in a certain sense, but I get what you're saying too. It, it is, it's also, that novelty is what's driven me to like, Try a little bit of every spiritual practice. Sure. But then stop. Like, sure. Hard yeah, stuff. right. We have to understand novelty in a much bigger dimension. Yeah. Yeah. So the piece about discomfort is important because let's, let's look at this very like sensibly for a moment. If being in the present were, if you experienced being in the present as being joyful, happy, peaceful, and alive, why would you ever do anything but that? So let's assume for a moment that there's some kind of intelligence in us that when we come to the present moment, it's uncomfortable, so there's something in us that wants to move away from it, right? So let's, let's say that even our movement away from presence has some kernel of intelligence in it, okay? So it's not just a too, totally idiotic thing we're doing. Why? What's uncomfortable about the present moment? And I would encourage you, as I ask you a question, to check out this present moment and see what's so uncomfortable about it. Something might happen to me. Right. A fear might arise. A fear arises in us about what the next moment might be like. Right? That would be one such thing that happens. So there's discomfort in that. There's discomfort that we're carrying around a mind which is vigilant about the potential dangers of the next moment. What else? Gonna, it's going to go away. It's going away even as we s- articulate it, right? Ever found a present moment you can hang on to? Try hanging on to this one. Oh, wait, this one. No, wait, this one. <laughs> you know, ever found one you could hang on to? Which, of course, reminds us of death. Can't hang on to anything. So there's a little bit of anxiety about that, isn't there? That there's nothing to hang on to in the present moment. There's nothing to grab. There's nothing to possess. There's nothing to call yours. Not to mention the fact that you've been through painful experiences in your life that your body remembers. And as soon as you're present, 
your, bo your body says, hey, can you fix this? Can you fix this? Can you fix this heartache that you've been carrying around for 20 years? Can you fix this pain in your low back because you tightened up when someone called you an idiot? Or, I, you know, I don't know. So the body itself being uncomfortable. So you, we look at it this way, it's pretty much, well, I might as well just go back to sleep, right? But if we have, so what we're encountering in that moment, in any given moment, is the momentum of our past experience in the form of thoughts about the next moment, in the form of wanting something to hang on to, in the form of past hurts or traumas even, right? So when we face those things in the present moment, it feels like the most natural thing to do is check out. Why? Because when that happened 10, 15, 20 years ago, you checked out. So it feels like now that's the most natural thing to do. But all that's really happening for us is that we are encountering the momentum of our past as it is showing up in the present. That does not last. That's one thing that, that sticking with the practice of presence will show us, is that the discomfort that comes in being present, really present, doesn't last. In fact, it, it quickly fades. But it takes exposing ourselves to this experience of presence fully enough, I, sh I won't even say long enough because that implies time, fully enough that we let this momentum and residue of past experience wear itself out. Because what happens is, if that momentum of past experience shows up in your present moment experience and you do something to avoid it, you go back into your past experience. And so we're always perpetuating our past experience in the present moment, which of course leads it into the next moment and into the next. And this gives us a familiar sense of predictability. It's like, well, at least my life is predictable. I'll be miserable tomorrow, right? Or at least, you know, or at least uh, I'll do the same activities tomorrow. But in that, we can see this real avoidance of the unknown. So our practice of presence has to take us into this encounter with our past, endure it, if you will, and face the discomfort of the future, or face the unknown, let's say. There's no really no discomfort in the future, there's just the unknown of the future. And if our practice of presence can accomplish that, we start to see a major transformation in us, in that this past and future mind is the sickness. It's the sickness. And our presence-oriented awareness, consciousness, is health. And I mean that on all levels. Physical, emotional, spiritual, relational. We see it play out really well if we look at relationships. Because you'll tend to default to being the same person you have been in certain relationships. Why do you do that? Because it's more uncomfortable to face the past momentum of who you have been and face the unknown of who you are as you encounter that person. So it's easier just to like flip a switch and be the person you were yesterday. Right? Presence itself isn't uncomfortable. The experience of the momentum of the past fading is uncomfortable. 
may have great discomfort about it. But if we look at our practice of presence as being like a fire and our past experience as just things swimming into the fire to be burned up, we start to see how potent that practice really is. The sense of identity is comforting and grounded and that's all about what's familiar from the past. Exactly. That's the main, that's the central component within the practice of presence is identity. You will find no higher or more evolved dimension to spiritual practice than that of identity. And when your identity feels threatened, it's the most threatening part of spiritual practice. That's where people freak out. Because how, if I gave you the assignment to be who you really are minus all of your past investment in identities from this moment forward, you're like, how do I do that? Because it's likely I'm going to go out and I'm going to eat similar food and dress a certain way and talk to people a certain way. How would you go about doing that otherwise? Well, you start to see that the only real solution is presence. My only real solution to being who I really am is to be who I really am right now. Because as soon as I start making a plan for who I'm going to be, I'm already gone. I'm already out of the picture. So you said this is big work and it's a huge task at hand, but then I know you said it's careful really what I'm just really the difference between the two and that can seem like a big paradox definitely I think a lot of people would say that's a paradox or that's, that's those two things don't jive um, different prescriptions for different stages of the journey um, for the striving mind we say let go and for the lazy mind we say get to work <laughs> you know what I mean and where a person falls so the lazy mind and the striving mind are really not much different than the broccoli and the tomato one part of us which will strive one part of us which is lazy they're just sort of polar opposites of, of who we take ourselves to be so when we fall into the trap of, of being too ambitious something has to come along and say hey relax let go here and if we fall into the trap of going to sleep too much, something has to come along and say, get to work. Um, but eventually what those two medicines will do is they're going to bring us into a center. They're going to bring us into an understanding where our, our work and our letting go are exactly the same thing. And that's the really sweet place. Because we realize that the true work of spiritual work is the work, if you will, of letting go. And that understanding runs deep in us when we come to that because we have a, then we have a very profound understanding about what letting go means. A lot of people confuse letting go for like resignation. They're just like, oh, I'll just throw all my troubles off and I'll just whatever. And uh, that's, of course, not letting go. But through the tempering of these two sides, we're gradually brought into a, a really nice middle place where they're actually the same thing. If you understand that spiritual work is letting go and letting go is the work you're doing, then you start to understand really well what the work is. 
but it usually takes a person a lot of energy or time to discover that clean relationship because we have false notions about what it means to work and we have false notions about what it means to let go and those have to be sort of shaken off so that these two can come together. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, I have one last question. What does it look like to incorporate our triggers into our spiritual practice so we're not just trying to avoid Oh, you're not incorporating them. They are your spiritual practice. <laughs> they already are the soul. <laughs> yes, they, they, it is your spiritual so practice. No need to incorporate. Avoid your triggers and you're avoiding your spiritual practice. Yes. Okay. Yes. Because the triggers, the triggers, all they are, are either unhealed or unawake parts of us. Yeah. And so uh, it would be foolish for us to say, well, these are on the perimeter of our work and we have to bring them in. They're really the, whole, the heart and soul of our work. You know? We don't want that to be the case. Like, that's understandable. It's like, I don't want my triggers to be my work, but they are. You it know? makes me sad because I've been on some college campuses that day where people are like, trigger warning. Like, there's so much hyper awareness around triggers. Yes. From a, from a valid place, yep. but yet there's also like... Yeah, I think it's part of the sickness of, of the misunderstanding that goes on in both psychological and spiritual communities around, and it's not altogether, it's not surprising given what we do with children of, of teaching them to avoid uncomfortable, yeah, teaching them to avoid uncomfortable things um, or uncomfortable states. And so we're all walking around trying not to offend each other when we would, not that we should go around trying to offend each other, but we would do well to recognize that we need, we need the work of being triggered. We need it. We need it. Chogyam Trungpa, the Buddhist teacher, said that the role of the teacher is to insult you. That's, you have Golden Girls and Buffet. Golden Girls and Hometown Buffet. Right. Yeah. Because... What has to be understood in us are the places of fixation and those unhealed places and those unawake places. And that's what our triggers will do. If you didn't have an unawake or unhealed place in you, you wouldn't have such a trigger. And there's an easy way to prove that. Very easy way to prove that. In that if I said to each of you, you are a green alien from Mars. What's your response? Bob, does that bother you? You might think I'm a little crazy or weird for saying that, but it doesn't really particularly bother. It doesn't trigger you, correct? Why? Because you know it's not true. You, you have absolute certainty. You're, you're at least to the degree that you know. You're not a little green Martian, right? Now, if I say to you, you are an unaware adult, that you're an idiot, you're stupid, Right, some of you will be triggered, some of you won't, but at least that's going to hit a little closer to home, isn't it? Because deep down we kind of feel like maybe I am stupid. You know what I mean? That hits a little closer to home. So there's a trigger in something like that. Right? So how am I going to get beyond this trigger but by going in and investigating this feeling I am stupid? Investigating it, working with it, healing it, loving it, forgiving it, whatever is needed. Right? That's not to say that we'll just end up this trigger-free expanse. But in reality, you will. You'll end up a trigger-free expanse. Right? We shouldn't mistake that for the idea of being perfect. But we should, mistake, we should 
understand that our triggers are our work. Like Rumi says, what hurts you blesses you. Because what triggers you wakes you up to that part of yourself, that unhealed or unawake part of yourself. I know that's not comfortable. I don't like it any more than you do, right? But it's the truth. And we can all be as children again without triggers unless someone takes away our lollipop. <laughs> all right. Irony in that, right? We spend our whole lives trying to go back to the state we were when we were. Yeah. We spend the first half trying to get away from it and the second half trying to get back to it. And if we're lucky, we get, get onto that a little earlier. <laughs> Seven-year-old. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. That's why the big guy says, become as children again if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven. All right, we won't have any satsang for the next two weeks. I'll be away. But we'll be back on the, uh, I don't know what it is, 7th of July, somewhere 6th, 7th, 8th, something like that. So I'll see you then. Namaste, Namaste, everyone. Namaste.